0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a growing number of calls are coming into the Upstate New York Poison Center about children who are exposed to marijuana products.
1: All ages have had increases in calls to the Poison Center regarding marijuana products, but the biggest increase has been in the age of five and under, so in small children
0: and a scientist provides an overview of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, a syndrome that was first described in medical literature in 1775.
2: There have been increases in the rates of people being diagnosed with ADHD, but that's primarily due to better identification of the disorder, especially among adults.
0: All that and prostate cancer warning signs, followed by a visit from the Healing Muse, after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only Academic Medical Center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, experts from all over the world agree about several aspects of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which we'll hear about from the Upstate scientist who organized the consensus statement. But first, the clinical director of the Upstate New York Poison Center is here to talk about the rise in children who are exposed to marijuana products. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The Upstate New York Poison Center has seen a drastic increase so far this year in the number of calls to the Poison Center about children and teens who've been exposed to marijuana products, particularly marijuana edibles. Dr. Christine Stork is here to talk about this troubling trend. She's a doctor of pharmacy and the clinical director of the Upstate New York Poison Center. Welcome back to HealthLink on
1: Air, Dr. Stork. Oh, thank you so much. Can you tell us about this increase? (laughs) Yeah, so this increase has been going on for a couple of years, but we're seeing a highly increased trajectory of these calls starting in about 2017, and they've really gone up every year, um, almost exponentially since then, and more than doubling each year. So is 2017
0: about the time marijuana edibles became available and – I guess they're growing in popularity.
1: Yeah, they're growing in popularity. They legalized marijuana has been increasing state to state, year to year, and I believe that's why we're seeing this increase now.
0: So what age children or teens, what are you seeing? Who's who's most affected?
1: All ages have had increases in calls to the poison center regarding marijuana products, but the biggest increase has been in the age of five and under, so in small children.
0: So little kids getting into it uh, accidentally, I suppose.
1: Yes, unintentional exposure to these edible products. Um, The same type of behavior that we normally see in the 2 and 3 year old age population of of the hand to mouth activity and unintentional exposures, but also in slightly older children, 4 and 5 year olds. We don't typically see too many unintentional poisonings in that age group, but these products, they look. And taste very much like candy. So to be expected in that age group as well
0: so edibles when we when we talk about edibles it's a it's marijuana but instead of smoking it it's made into something that looks like candy or something sweet that you would eat
1: yes historically throughout the past 20 30 years people have tried to convert their marijuana leaves into other type of edible products In their homes, maybe marijuana brownies might be something people may think of, but these are more manufactured products of marijuana that are extracted a little bit more professionally and then put into these packaged candy looking products.
0: And so some states where recreational marijuana was legalized in recent years, have you checked with them to see whether they've seen similar increases in exposures among kids and teens?
1: Yes, there have been increases throughout the United States in exposures and more so in states that have legalized marijuana, and in particular in this demographic of children in this very young age group and use and these edible products. there was just um a paper um, published with regard to these exposures as well that highlights calls to the United States poison centers and this increase in calls for. Um, marijuana products.
0: Are you seeing the use of the traditional marijuana cigarettes? Is that going down while edibles are going up, or do you still see some exposures to those?
1: We're still seeing some exposures to those, but that is not necessarily increasing in nature over time.
0: What age can people buy these products legally, the edibles?
1: I believe it's age 21. Okay and again it's in states where it's legal to buy those those edible products are not available currently in New York state. So the the individuals that are getting exposed to these edible products are bringing them in from out of state at this time.
0: So they're either traveling and coming back or are these available through the mail? Can you have I, them shipped to you?
1: I don't believe that's legal at this time.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about what makes these products dangerous and why they're more dangerous for kids. Um, What are some of the symptoms to be on the lookout for?
1: In small children, there's um, exaggerated additional effects that can be seen with marijuana products in general, but most notably edible products. The dose is a little bit higher in these edible products than traditional marijuana cigarettes. But in addition to that, the effects are are much more dramatic. These children have alterations in their mental status. They have declines in their mental status. They can become sedated. They can have coma. They can have breathing difficulties. So this is much more problematic in this age group. The other inf- information piece that is important for teens, tweens, adults with these edible marijuana products are that they do not have an onset of action that is similar to a marijuana cigarette. So people who are smoking a marijuana cigarette, their expectation is that they'll have an onset of effects within a very short period of time, minutes or so. Edible marijuana products have a long delay in onset. It can be several hours before the peak effect of a marijuana edible is seen. And this can also contribute to a larger dose being ingested of one of these edible products.
0: I did not realize that. So a parent who sees a child with the symptoms you described, they may not immediately think overdose. They may not know what's going on, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of, I think it's hard. I think that some of these parents do a bit of backtracking, you know, what is missing. And in addition, you know what what two year old only eats one gummy, True. so you know in one gummy tends to be the dose that people are supposed to take for the marijuana. There's a really nice um news report from a reporter who bought a legal marijuana candy bar, ate a piece of the candy bar, decided there was not a lot of effect, and then she ended up eating the entire candy bar, which then had exaggerated toxic effects for her as well,
0: Wow. Well, what happens if someone calls the poison center thinking their child may have eaten a cannabis gummy? What sorts of questions would you be asking them?
1: So, when calling the poison center, I would encourage everyone to call the poison center, but try to have an idea of the packaging of the products so we can gain some information and insight as to how many are missing, what dose the child might have been exposed to, and whether or not we think that the child will need to be observed in a healthcare setting.
0: If they are told to go, you know, to a hospital, what is likely to happen when they get there?
1: Um, They're likely to, you know, be observed for the most part for signs and symptoms of toxicity. And then once those signs and symptoms of toxicity occur, they'll manage them on a kind of an expectant basis. So the care, you know, there's no antidote for any of these marijuana products. So the care is very much general supportive care that any, you know, healthcare providers will be trained to provide.
0: You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking about the dramatic increase in the number of children and teens who are exposed to marijuana products with the Upstate New York Poison Center's Clinical Director, Doctor of Pharmacy, Christine Stork. I'd like to ask you about another product that was in the news recently called Delta-8-THC, New York State banned it. Can you explain what this product is?
1: Yeah, so um, regular marijuana products, the active component is Delta-9-THC, tetrahydrocannabinol. It's the chemical name. This product, Delta-8, is a slight chemical structural change, but very similar to Delta-9-THC. It's thought to have slightly less um, clinical effects on the brain, but it does have very similar clinical effects when used. So it was a legal um, drug or chemical within the United States and it was just recently banned in New York. There's also another one to look out for. We have not seen it too much yet, but there's a Delta 10 Um, THC as well. Again, just a slight structural change. The reason the Delta-8 was legal for so long is it it can be derived from hemp. And there's a legalization statute that hemp products, like we all are now pretty familiar with CBD, which is derived from hemp as well, they were designed to be legal. So Delta-8 THC can be derived from hemp as well. It also can be derived from marijuana plant.
0: So these Delta 8, 9, and 10, these are modified by by someone? These are not naturally occurring?
1: No, they can be naturally occurring. The ones that are derived from marijuana usually are chemically altered from, or derived from the plant.
0: What makes them more dangerous than just marijuana?
1: They probably are no more dangerous than marijuana, except that these products have no regulation surrounding their use and sale at this point, which is probably why they were banned at this time.
0: I see. Um, Can you help us differentiate THC from CBD? Now, you mentioned CBD. That's legal in New York State, right? Those are products um, that I think people use for pain relief um, as a lotion or a cream or an oil. Um, Are there other forms of CBD?
1: There are many forms of CBD. CBD. Um, But as you mentioned, um, those are the most, some of the most common ones ingested or applied topically CBD type products. They are considered more herbal products at this time. So they do not have a lot of structured efficacy data to determine whether they're useful. Um, Many people find them useful. Um, There's not a, a, a large amount of toxicity surrounding those as well. They do not cause a change in mental status when they are used um, in the doses that they're used. Some CBD products do have a small amount of THC in them as well, so they have to be below a certain percent of THC to be legally sold as CBD.
0: Are CBD products, are they dangerous for kids? Have you seen any exposures?
1: Yeah, very similar to THC, CBD products can cause toxicity in children as well. So something to look out for, that these all are chemical structures. We call them, the fancy name as being a xenobiotic because we have a lot of regulatory terminology surrounding whether something's a drug or an herbal, but in reality, they're all chemical structures, and that all of these things should be treated as though they're medications and kept up and away, away from small children, because they can have effects on the human body, in particular, small pediatric patients. So
0: the THC, if I'm understanding correctly, THC is regulated as as a drug and CBD is looked at as as an herbal product. Is one necessarily safer than the other if they Um, both held
1: risks, right? THC products have, a, have much more ability to cause alterations in mental status than CBD products. And in fact, CBD products, they do not cause much alteration in mental statuses at all in the doses that people use them. So they're, you know, in that sense, they are much safer. So what advice do you have to help keep
0: kids safe um, if people are going to have these products?
1: Yeah, you know, I think there's several things, basic poison prevention things I think would be very helpful in, including, you know, identify that they can be toxic, keep them away from small children, don't ingest these products or use these products around where small children can see you doing it because they like to mimic adult behavior. And when after you're using it, you have an open container or even a closed one, put it up and away. If you have a lockbox, put it in your lockbox with your other medications to limit the potential for exposure to small children.
0: So storing these products with medication would would be probably a wise move.
1: Yes. I think many of them, they do not come in tamper-proof packaging as well. So you just have to have that added degree of, you know, respect for the fact that they can cause toxicity in small children. Don't keep it, you know, on your countertop where you might keep your regular candy bars and other things that your child may think is okay to eat and again, they look so similar, you would never expect a small child to be able to tell the difference.
0: Are you concerned uh, with the laws changing in New York State that you'll continue to see an increase in calls to the poison center?
1: We are keeping an eye on that. Um, We're reviewing those products as well. We're collaborating a bit with New York State in terms of their regulatory process and trying to Get information if there is an increase in calls, um, But I, I guess the a really long way of saying, yeah, I th- I think we will see. An increase in calls, I'm hoping that educating the public as to how to keep the your children safe from these products will be helpful. Um, and maybe we won't see an increase because of that.
0: Thank you to Dr. Christine Stork. She's the clinical director of the Upstate New York Poison Center at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an overview of diagnosis and treatment of ADHD. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, I'll be talking with an expert in a syndrome that was first described in medical literature in 1775 and that we know today as Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. Dr. Stephen Ferrone is a distinguished professor and vice chair of research of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, and also a professor of neuroscience and physiology at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Farone. Thank you, Amber. Happy to be here. Now, you're the lead author of the World Federation of ADHD International Consensus Statement that was issued early in 2021. Was it your job to get ADHD experts from all over the world to agree on various aspects of attention
2: deficit hyperactivity disorder? Uh, absolutely. I've become concerned more and more over the years that uh, ADHD is, is misunderstood, by the public, by some health professionals, and frequently by policymakers. And to help with that, what I decided we needed was a a very clear statement about what are the the main findings in the research literature that experts from around the world could endorse as what I call evidence-based assertions about the disorder. And that's why why I convened this group of people. I was recently very concerned because the World Health Organization actually denied a treatment for ADHD called methylphenidate, people know it as Ritalin, uh, t- to be put on what they call their essential list of medicines for children. And uh, I, I and my colleagues from around the world thought this was a biased view based upon misinformation. It was one of the many, many reasons why we decided to do, to do this.
0: So how different was this document compared with one from a couple
2: decades ago? It's different in, uh, I would say, two major ways. One is that the Prior document was more of a consensus of experts. Opinions about what they thought was important and not important in ADHD here. What we use, we use the experts to find. Data, meaning meaning publications that had solid evidence, and we actually had very strict rules for defining that the prior publication didn't have rules for that. So, for example, we had well, not for example, we had 2 main rules. 1 rule was that we had to have uh, had to have a meta analysis, which meant that many studies have been done and been combined to come up with an answer to a question, or there was at least one very large study, including about 2000 or more participants um, that we felt was reasonably definitive in providing an answer to a specific question. So a quality level, you you looked at quality research. Essentially we're looking at quality and it's better to call it high evidence research. So for example, somebody could do a study, a small study that's a high quality study, but if it's only one study, it it's hard to say that it's definitive finding because we need to we need to have that study replicated by many other studies before we can say we're pretty sure that this is really a solid evidence for adhd because what we know from the literature is that sometimes i shouldn't say just sometimes um frequently studies are published and for some reason they're just not replicated in the future Hmm.
0: well are is there a higher proportion of cases of adhd today than 20 years
2: ago uh, no, there's, well, there's, we have to clarify something here. Uh, there's two ways to ask that question. So, one question is Is the true prevalence of ADHD changing over time? And the only way we can get that information is to go out into the field and interview people and find out how much ADHD there is. Now, many studies have been done over the past decades. And when those have been combined into a meta analysis, what uh, my colleagues in Brazil found, who led this meta analysis, was that there was no change over time in the prevalence of ADHD. Now, in contrast to that, there have been increases in the rates of people being diagnosed with ADHD, but that's primarily due to better identification of the disorder, especially among adults. So for example, in the 1990s, when I first began to study adult ADHD, it was rarely diagnosed in primary care and even rarely diagnosed by psychiatrists. And as more information came out about the validity of the disorder, both for children and adults, but even more so for adults, we see higher diagnostic rates.
0: I read in the statement that the prevalence rate among Black youth was considerably higher than among White youth. Do
2: you have an explanation about why? We don't have a clear explanation for why that's the case. Um, We're always concerned when we see racial disparities in diagnosis rates, uh, treatment rates, and so forth. And we need to understand that Better before we jump to any conclusions about what to do. It clearly needs to be studied more before we move forward with that. A lot more work has to be done.
0: Do we know why ADHD is more common in males? Or or do you have a hypothesis for why that is?
2: It's been a conundrum for many years. We know it's not due to the, the common genetic variants that are causal for ADHD. We recently published a very large study over over 50,000 participants in that study, looking uh, at their genomes. And the short story is that when we look at the common genetic variants in their genome, that does not explain the sex differences we see in ADHD. Uh, Also, I should point out there are two sex differences in ADHD. The first sex difference has to do with how uh, the sex difference we observe in the clinic. And there, the prevalence, sex prevalence is about nine to one in favor of males. Whereas in the population, it's only about 3 to 1 in favor of males. And so what we do know is that uh, basically boys are more likely to get referred for their ADHD than girls because their ADHD tends to be more disruptive. Boys are more likely to be running around, causing problems in school, causing problems at home, getting into altercations with other kids. Whereas girls are more likely to just be kind of spacey and lack concentration and be staring out the window in school, not bothering people, and therefore they get referred for treatment less. But on the other hand, we do know that even in the population, regardless of referral to clinic, ADHD is still more common in boys than in girls. It may have to do—well, we, we just don't know. I hate to, I hate to, I'm someone who hates to speculate because it's been studied for years, and there's still no good answer to that, to that problem. What we haven't yet looked at in our genetic studies is the implication of the X chromosome. Um, those studies, we hope, will come out in the next few years, and they may hold the clue to sex differences in ADHD.
0: Thinking internationally, are there certain parts of the world where ADHD is a, a bigger problem, or are there areas where it's not much
2: of a problem? When my colleagues who did the meta-analysis, the prevalence around the world, looked at that issue, their conclusion was essentially the prevalence of ADHD is similar around the world. There's a lot of variation from study to study, but that variation is better explained by methodology than it is by um, the location of the study. It's very clear where we have the most data. For example, from the U.S., Australia, China, and Europe, uh, and even in Brazil, there's a lot of data. The, the prevalences are very much the same. We have fewer data from Africa and the Middle East, and so I can't say from which, and also from India, there's some data, but it's it's much less. Uh, we can't see for certainty that the rates are the rates are different. Um, but so far, the bulk of the data tell us that the prevalence is similar around the world, which is consistent with the idea that it's a a disorder with a substantial genomic component.
0: Does ADHD disproportionately affect people based on their
2: IQ? It it does not. ADHD, uh, I like to say ADHD is an equal opportunity disorder. Everybody can be affected by ADHD, whether you have a low IQ or a high IQ. Uh, This is an extremely important point that's frequently misunderstood by clinicians who think, for example, if somebody is mentally retarded Uh, or I should say intellectually disabled, we've changed the nomenclature. Somebody's intellectually disabled, some people think, well, they can't have ADHD. All of their symptoms are due to their intellectual disability. Well, that's simply not fair to the person with intellectual disability because it denies them a potential treatment. And treatment studies have shown that you you can treat people who are intellectually disabled and have ADHD symptoms with the treatments for ADHD and their ADHD improves, and hence their quality of life will improve. Same is true at the other end of the IQ spectrum. Some of my colleagues say, I, I won't treat it. somebody who's a high IQ person. In fact, that's a, that's a rule out for ADHD. They can't have ADHD and be, have high IQ. Or some people say they can't have ADHD and be very successful. Well, I understand why they say that. They say that because we know ADHD impairs performance in school and at work. And they then make the jump that therefore you can't be successful and you can't have a high IQ. But it turns out when you look at the research literature, It shows if you look at people with high IQs, compare those with ADHD and without ADHD, those who have ADHD are just not doing as well as those who don't have ADHD. When I say not doing as well, I mean, they have more. uh, Neuropsychological problems, they have more impairments in life, and they also literally uh, earn less income. They have, and they're more likely to change jobs and have poor job performance. So ADHD affects all levels of intelligence.
0: This is Upstate's HealthLink on air from Upstate Medical University. I'm your host Amber Smith talking with Professor Stephen Ferrone. He's an expert in attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and he recently led the assembly of the World Federation of ADHD International Consensus Statement. That statement says almost 6% of youth and 2.5% of adults have ADHD. So does that mean some of the youth
2: outgrow ADHD? Yes it does. We know from Follow up studies of youth, these are kids that were studied when they were kids that had ADHD, and then we look at them over time into adulthood. By young adulthood, about one-third of those will have completely remitted their. ADHD and wouldn't meet any criteria. It wouldn't be treatable by a clinician. Their ADHD essentially remits. There are some brain imaging studies that tell us that those those kids whose brains um, tend to become more typical over time are also the ones who tend to remit ADHD. Now, what I mean, by more typical, I mean, when we look at them in childhood, we compare an ADHD child to a typically development child, their brains are a little bit different. They show small uh, abnormalities in different areas of the brain. But as ADHD kids get older, those brain differences get smaller, and some of the kids completely re- remit those brain differences, and they're more likely to also remit their ADHD. So we do think there is some, some recovery from ADHD is possible, in about a third of patients by young adulthood.
0: And you can actually see this on an MRI, is that right?
2: You can see it in group data in the MRI. If we we take a group of ADHD kids and a group of controls and we compare their mean differences, you can't really see it on an individual MRI. So there's nothing, if, for example, I took the brain scan of an ADHD person and a non-ADHD person, and I gave it to a radiologist to read, they wouldn't see any difference in the brains. There's nothing, there's no gross um, neurological problem with people with ADHD. The problem is very subtle. So, for example, they might have, on average, a 2% difference in the volume of a certain area of the brain that is implicated in uh, areas of the brain that f- would affect ADHD symptoms. And we think that those small deviations are relevant to the disorders pathophysiology, but they're not pathognomonic. In and of themselves, they don't say, this person definitely has ADHD, and they can't be seen, they're too small. So parents shouldn't worry that their kid has some major brain defect. It's, it's a variation in the brain that's at one extreme of normal development. Are genetic or environmental factors more important in
0: determining whether a person's gonna develop ADHD? Because it's, it's a mix of both,
2: is that right? It, it, it's a great question, Amber, and, and uh, people tend to think that there's a, you know, there's this kind of conflict between genes and environment. It's one or the other, or one's stronger than the other. And the bottom line is that you know, the, the environment is the stage and the genes are the actors on the stage. The two work together to produce a person. You can't have one without the other. So I wouldn't say that genes are more important or environment's more important. What we do know is that both play a role in the disorder. And more importantly, gene-environment interaction is important. A gene variant which increases the risk for ADHD may have an effect in one environment. For example, if the fetus had been exposed to a pregnancy complication, but it wouldn't have an effect in another environment. So we're really focused these days on how does genes and environment work together to produce disorders. And also, and this is something that is very important for people to understand, genes and environment can also correlate with one another. We tend to think of them as totally independent, but that's not true. And there are, for example, we know that now from studies of the genome that there are genomic variants that increase the risk that a person will be placed in a stressful environment. We know, for example, that exposure to stressful environments has is is moderately heritable, meaning that genes regulate how we're exposed to stressful environments. Not complete, not completely, but and this is this makes sense if you think about it because let's say we know that personality is genetically driven and say impulsivity is genetically driven. So a person who's impulsive may put themselves in a stressful environment, but they're being exposed to the environment is correlated with the genes that they carry. So it's a very complex picture that we're trying to disentangle.
0: Well, I'd like to ask you about how ADHD is diagnosed, because if you can't use a a brain imaging and there's no psychological test, right? How do you go about saying with certainty that someone has ADHD?
2: that's correct amber and this is another area which is greatly misunderstood by the public and even some of my colleagues the criticism out in the field when i say the field many out in the media and the internet is that adhd is a subjective diagnosis it's not an objective diagnosis like a blood test or taking a blood pressure measurement it's called subjective because the diagnosis is made by the diagnostician Asking questions of the patient and/or the parent, and also observing the patient. And it's not made by an objective test. Well, these people, what these people don't understand is that the subject, the subjective nature versus the objective nature is not what's important. What's important in a diagnosis is: is it reproducible? Does one expert give the same opinion as another expert? The answer for ADHD is yes. The diagnosis is highly reliable. In fact, the diagnosis of ADHD is actually more reliable than, a, than taking a blood pressure measurement. Blood pressure measurements are highly unreliable. And if someone's trying to get an accurate measurement, they'll actually take it several times to get a better a better measurement. So, number one, we do have a diagnosis of ADHD. It's subjective. It can only be made by an, a diagnostician asking these questions. There's a belief out in the field, among some of my colleagues, that you can make the diagnosis, for example, with neuropsychological testing or that you need neuropsychological testing to quote, confirm the diagnosis or quote, rule out the diagnosis. That's also not true. It's it's totally unnecessary. And in some places can be a real expense for the the patient. In fact, when I was a young man starting out, uh, when I worked at the Massachusetts General Hospital, the clinic there was doing neuropsychological testing on nearly all children with ADHD. It was a very expensive proposition for parents. And we launched some studies to determine if it was necessary, found out it wasn't, and we were able to reduce the burden of testing on the families and still get sufficient neuropsychological data to be helpful to patients. I just have to clarify one point, because when I say this, sometimes people think, oh, you know, Perone is against neuropsychological testing. No, I'm not. Neuropsychological testing is very useful for all sorts of purposes. It's just not useful for diagnosing ADHD. That needs to be understood.
0: Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back with more about ADHD with Professor Stephen Ferrone after this short break. Thank you for listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and my guest is Dr. Stephen Ferrone. He's internationally recognized for his extensive research on attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and he's a distinguished professor at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse. Getting back to the World Federation of ADHD International Consensus Statement,
2: can you talk about what aspects of ADHD do not currently have consensus? One of the areas, for example, it would be how effective are some of the newer medications for ADHD, because we don't have a lot of studies of those new medications, so we didn't weigh in on, on what we thought. For example, the FDA recently um, recently approved an extended-release veloxazine, which is a non-stimulant medication for ADHD, which the clinical trials show are safe and efficacious for the disorder, but we didn't talk about that because there's really very few, you know very few studies about that particular medication.
0: Is there anything about the uh, condition that's still up for debate among the experts or anything that needs a lot
2: more research? One area that needs research is the phenomena of what's called sluggish cognitive tempo in people with ADHD. My colleague Russ Barkley likes to call this concentration deficit disorder, which I think is better because sluggish kind kind of implies something negative. And these are people who primarily show Difficulties in in concentration, and they tend to to they tend to do things more slowly than other people, which is where the slow comes in. Their cognition tends to be slow and, and impaired. They're, they frequently are diagnosed with ADHD because their symptoms overlap with inattentive ADHD. But some people have argued that we need another disorder called concentration deficit disorder. The, the data are still not completely in on that. There have been there's been a lot of research. Uh, I think it probably will be discussed the next time the diagnostic manuals are revised, and the main reasons for revising it would be if there's good evidence that um, one would need a different approach to treatment people with this particular variant of ADHD or whether it's simply a variant of ADHD and should be included there. So more to come on that, on sluggish cognitive tempo.
0: Yeah. Well, let me ask you about, um, can you tell us about the overall quality of life for someone who has ADHD based on the consensus statement?
2: Well, it of course depends if they're treated or not treated. We do know that treatment for ADHD uh, is highly effective. And actually, in if you take standardized metrics of outcome in clinical trials, the treatments for ADHD are as or more effective than most medications used in other areas of medicine and psychiatry. Uh, and that's that's really important to know. These are not um, medications that have minor effects. And here I'm talking about the stimulant medications. Those are the ones that have the very the largest effects in, in ADHD. We know that from the clinical trials, uh, and there have been very large meta-analyses that now demonstrate this. Also important is that there have been a number of studies looking at uh, the effect of ADHD medications, or I should say medications for ADHD on quality of life, Measures in the real world. So before I get to that, we should talk a little bit about what these quality of life issues are. We, people ADHD, When the ADHD is untreated, people with ADHD have, are at higher risk for many, many bad outcomes. These include substance use disorders, injuries due to accidents. Uh, motor vehicle accidents are common in adolescent and adulthood, other kinds of accidents uh, for children, uh, educational under- underachievement at all levels of schooling, including college. As adults, ADHD people are more likely to be unemployed, they're more likely to get into gambling problems. Um, Teenage teenage girls with ADHD are more more likely to get uh, pregnant. Um, At all ages, people with ADHD have difficulty socializing, are more prone to delinquency, antisocial, and criminal behavior. Uh, Sadly, very sadly, people with ADHD have an increased risk for suicide and premature death. The risks are small, they are notable.
0: Let me interrupt you. Do, are these people with ADHD that's untreated? In other words, if you have ADHD but it's treated, are you still at risk for these adverse outcomes?
2: Uh, and that's that's a very good question. So, we know that these studies most of the, most of these studies that have looked at treatment, remember you can't do a clinical trial to look at these kinds of outcomes it would be much too long to do and it wouldn't be ethical because you'd you'd have to keep some people off medication for a long time. And so we know from, from naturalistic studies of many of these come from, from countries that have uh, long-term medical registered data on individuals. We know that treatment with ADHD reduces accidental injuries uh, of all kinds, including traumatic brain injuries, decreases substance use disorders, and also cigarette smoking in particular, uh, improves educational achievements, reduces the risk for bone fractures, Uh, reduces the risk for sexually transmitted infections, and reduces risks for depression, suicide, criminal activity, and teenage pregnancy. And I should say, some of these studies are very elegant. So, for example, they'll, they'll look at the treatment history of a person, and they'll divide it up into times when they were on the ADHD medication and times when they were off the ADHD medication. And what they find is that in periods when a person is off the ADHD medication, they're more likely to have an accident, more likely to engage in Criminal behavior and, and so forth. So yes, you're less likely to, exper- to experience these negative uh, outcomes than if you're not taking ADHD medications.
0: You're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking to Professor Stephen Ferrone about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. The FDA earlier this year approved the first new drug for kids with ADHD in more than ten years. What can you tell us about? Veloxazine. Is that how it's pronounced? Veloxazine? Yes,
2: it's, it's, it's uh, veloxazine or extended release veloxazine because it's uh, it's a formulation that extends over a longer period of the day, requiring fewer doses. Uh, the first important f- fact about veloxazine is that it is a non stimulant medication, which separates it from methylphenidate, most people know as Ritalin, and it separates it from amphetamine, which most people know as Adderall or Vyvanse. Uh, the non stimulants the main difference between the two classes of drug are that the uh, stimulants are more effective on average than the non-stimulants. That's, that's, that's very clear. On the other hand, the non-stimulants have the benefit of, um, they're not scheduled medications because the stimulant medications can be addictive and can be diverted for non-medical use. They're, high, they're, they're heavily controlled by the FDA and that requires that doctors uh, file certain paperwork uh, to record and how frequently the patients have been prescribed the medications and so forth. The non-stimulants are, are not scheduled, and they're not abusable. And therefore, physicians definitely favor those for patients that are at risk for either misusing their medication or for diverting it to other, other patients. We also like people to keep in mind that although on average, non-stimulants are less effective, some people do very well on non-stimulants. So they can be a very... We know they're a very effective medication for some uh, some people. Veloxetine is, for example, more like atamoxetine than it is like the stimulants. Although it's different from atomoxetine because atamoxetine, which most people know as stratera, which was the first non-stimulant for ADHD, that, that acted primarily through the norepinephrine transporter. Um, Veloxetine has a more complicated uh, mechanism of action that includes uh, dopamine, um, uh, neuroadrenaline, and also uh, serotonin to some degree and so because of that it's very likely to have different effects than a some of which we will begin to discover as we do more research i was very pleased one of the problems with prior non-stimulants is that unlike a stimulant which uh which whose efficacy is apparent very early like within a week of treatment sometimes within a few days of treatment non-stimulants take a longer time to show their effects sometimes up to four to six weeks I recently published a paper that showed with extended-release veloxazine that, uh, that after two weeks, physicians could do a pretty good job of predicting who would and would not respond later on in six weeks of treatment. And that's important because it means that somebody who's not going to be a responder, we can stop their treatment after two weeks of treatment as opposed to waiting for six or eight weeks of treatment.
0: Are these medications um, things that a person might have to take their entire life, though? I mean, th- these are
2: long-term, right? These long term medications for ADHD do not cure the disorder. They control the symptoms in a manner that will allow people to live lives that are essentially like other people without ADHD. But no, they cannot stop. Without, when I say they cannot stop the medications, prescribers will, will sometimes later in life suggest that the medication be stopped to see if their patient is one of those patients whose disorder has remitted. And so the medication could be stopped and they see how's life over the period of the next few weeks or so. If the patient's symptoms don't reemerge, they may be fortunate and their ADHD has remitted and they don't need medication. But for most people, by young adulthood, I mean two-thirds of people will need to continue their medication um, lifelong.
0: Are there non-medication treatments that are helpful?
2: There are non-medication treatments. uh, And non-medication treatments are they are, in some ways, the holy grail for parents and patients with ADHD who would really love not to be on a medication. They are, however, not as effective. So let's go through what these treatments are. Um, if we look first at what you might broadly call nutraceutical treatments, vitamins, minerals, etc., uh, or specialized diets, when you look at the, the best data available, um, none of these have been shown to be effective except for Two. One would be if a child in in children that are exposed to high levels of food colorings, removing food colorings will reduce their ADHD symptoms. That's one. Number two is that using omega 3 fatty acids can help reduce symptoms in some people with ADHD. But is that standard fish oil? uh, That's a standard fish oil pill that you can get from the drugstore. Um, although I would recommend that people probably use the specific type of fish oil that was used in the clinical trials, just because we know that that one works. And there aren't really standards for fish oil that the FDA makes people follow. So you're better off with a high-quality fish oil, which might cost more. Um, And at the very least, you want a fish oil that um, has a high EPA to DHA ratio. It sounds like a lot of letters, but it will make sense if you if you Google the internet about fish oil, you'll see that there's EPA and DHA are two constituents, two important constituents. But the ratio is important. We'll have more EPA and DHA. It's unfortunately more expensive than um, other ratios, but it's the one that works. I have to say though, everybody has to keep in mind that on average, these treatments aren't very very effective. So, for example, on a scale of one to ten, roughly speaking. A stimulant medication has an effect of 10, 9 to 10, let's say. A non-stimulant medication is around 5 or 6. But fish oil is around 2. And removing food colorings is also around 2. So the effects are very small. They could be large in a very, very few people. But I would not recommend that anybody uses these for a long period of time and hope that symptoms will eventually go away. If you try them in your child or in yourself, and you still have symptoms after, say, a month, you really ought to um, consider a medication treatment. Now, there are also what we call psychosocial treatments. In children, this is typically uh, family behavior therapy where the parents are taught in a way how to be, how to improve their parenting skills. Because if you have an ADHD child, you need to be a super parent. You can't just have the regular parenting skills that most of us have. And those behavioral treatments, in clinical trials, unfortunately, have not shown to be dramatically effective for reducing ADHD symptoms. In fact, in the best data we have available, um, what we can say is that ADHD symptoms are reduced a tiny bit or not at all. On the other hand, they're very good at reducing symptoms of disruptive behavior, which are not part of the ADHD um, constellation or diagnosis, but they are frequently seen among kids with ADHD. So behavioral treatments like family, training have their place, but they are typically not good as standalone treatments. There is some data, not enough to to reach consensus, there's some data suggesting combining behavioral treatments with medication treatments may reduce the dose of medication that's required to keep ADHD symptoms reduced. Now, the other type of treatment to talk about would be what we call cognitive behavior therapy, which is really the only Therapy in adults and adolescents that's been well studied. There have been many studies of mindfulness training. I shouldn't say many. There have been a few small studies of mindfulness training in adolescents and adults, but these have not shown, been shown to be effective. But cognitive behavior therapy has been shown to improve outcome, but only people who are already being treated with medication as a standalone treatment. The data are not as clear. Um, there may be some people may do well, but it's typically not a good standalone treatment.
0: Very interesting. Thank you so much for this broad overview about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. My guest has been Dr. Stephen Ferrone. He's a distinguished professor and vice chair of research of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, and also a professor of neuroscience and physiology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now for some expert advice from the experts at Upstate. Dr. Hanan Goldberg is an assistant professor of urology who specializes in urologic oncology. What are the warning signs of prostate cancer and how is it diagnosed?
3: First, it's important to know that other than skin cancer, prostate cancer is the most common cancer in American men. About one in eight men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer during his lifetime. Uh, There's been close to uh, 250,000 new cases of prostate cancer uh, each year, and about 34,000 deaths from prostate cancer uh, in the US. Uh, It is more likely to develop in older men, um, and about six out of 10 cases are diagnosed in men who are 65 or older. Uh, It's quite rare in men under the age of 40, and the average age of diagnosis is 66. it's, uh, as I said before, it's the second leading cause uh, of cancer death in American men, uh, behind only lung cancer. So about 1 in 40 men will die from prostate cancer. Um, it's, it, it can be a very serious disease, but most men are usually diagnosed, that, that are usually diagnosed with prostate cancer do not uh, have any kind of symptoms. Uh, it's usually diagnosed quite early uh, because of prostate cancer screening, which involves PSA and physical examination. Uh, but the prostate cancer screening is a very important process, and that's why men should be screened on a regular basis when once, once they reach a certain age.
0: Thank you, Dr. Hanan Goldberg from Upstate Medical University. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
1: Nicholas Belichico is in his fourth year of medical school and has already published a book of poetry, Pouring Echoes. He sent us a poem, Writing on the Wall. It bears witness to a physician's diagnostic analytics, still allowing room for empathy and care. Writing on the Wall. A slight shuffling gait, moderate cogwheel, slowness in speech, minimal stooped posture. I see it. It is written like sloppy graffiti. You ask me to interpret. It's like reading a telegram to a soldier's wife. I pause and give you a second more of a life without a diagnosis.
0: This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a neurologist provides an update on multiple sclerosis and the chief of geriatrics discusses the new drug for Alzheimer's disease. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe, with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.